Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. This week, we're talking about the new Aaron Sorkin film, Trial of the Chicago 7, which opened on Netflix this past weekend. Of course, it's about the 1969 trial of leaders of the anti-war movement, including Tom Hayden, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and Rennie Davis, who joins us now. It's a pleasure to say... Rennie Davis, welcome to the program. Yeah, well, thanks, John. My pleasure. Well, the movie stars Sasha Baron Cohen as Abby. You are played by an English actor named Alex Sharp, and your attorney, Bill Kunstler, is played by a very famous English actor, Mark Rylance. The story begins in 1969, when one of the first things the Nixon administration did after he took office was to indict you and seven other people for conspiring to cross state lines to incite a riot at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August 1968. Did you conspire with Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Tom Hayden, Dave Dellinger, John Freund, Lee Weiner, and Bobby Seale to cross state lines to incite a riot at the DNC in Chicago in 68? Abby had a joke for everything, and his response to that was, we couldn't agree on lunch. <laughs> so, to give you a little context, so this was the law that was passed when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, you know, hundred cities went up in riots. The the Congress itself was surrounded by by armed troops. I mean, it was it was really uh, it was a time when the lawmakers started to move into well, it's the leaders. You know, they're the cause of everything. <laughs> so. A, they passed a law, and you, you really need to understand that a riot was defined as an assembly of three or more people, one of whom violated or threatened to violate a law. And so if, if you had used interstate commerce, you crossed the state line, and you had the intention, what had, what had to do with what you wrote 
or what you said, okay, to incite a riot that might have happened, you know, three years after you spoke, but all it was was three people, one of whom had a clenched fist raised in the air. You could go to jail for five years. And we were uh, charged with conspiracy to do this. That meant added another five years to our possible sentence. So what did you do about the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August 1968? I guess there wasn't really an issue about going, but, you know, I was the coordinator of a, really the largest coalition of anti-war and civil rights organizations, not just of that time, but of all times in the country. You know, we had 150 national organizations in coalition. Martin Luther King was in our coalition. And, you know, I fully expected to bring 500,000 people to Chicago. Chicago at that time was holding its Democratic Convention, and they were the prosecutor of this war in Vietnam. I mean, Mayor Daley was tough. I knew Mayor Daley. You know, I've been a community organizer in Chicago beforehand, but the idea that, you know, kind of the right to petition the government would just be thrown out the window by denying permits, basically. So we went anyway, and, uh, you know, uh, mostly our numbers obviously were reduced. It was mostly young people with a lot of courage. We knew kind of what we were going into. I mean, I had 4,000 marshals that were pretty, I mean, we were actually very well organized in this chaos, and we had 1,000 medics ready, and but I don't think any of us were quite prepared. You know, when, when 11 o'clock came to the curfew in the park where we were staying, you know, the police assembled, tear gas was fired, and in they came, clubbing and beating. And it was, it was, uh, it wasn't just that, we were beaten as demonstrators. I mean, newsmen that you would, everybody knew, you know, where they were represented CBS, the, the major networks. You know, I watched people sitting on their front porch, you know, just basically trying to see what was going on and get clubbed and beaten on their front porch, you know, people who lived in Chicago. And it was an event that uh, almost had no equal in terms of television ratings, you could say, you know, I mean, we were, we were watched by more people on television than watched the first man landing on the moon. And it shifted the entire opinion of the country about the Vietnam War. There was actually a Gallup poll taken two weeks before the convention that showed a majority of the country supported their government in a, in a war. And two weeks after that convention, the same Gallup poll showed a majority of the American people now supported our position to get out. Well, I'm especially interested in the way this story is told in the Aaron Sorkin film, partly because I wrote a book about the trial. It's called Conspiracy in the Streets, The Extraordinary Trial of the Chicago 7. In the book, I describe you as the new left's most talented organizer, I, I say you did most of the real organizing for the protests at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in 1968, but somehow that's not in the movie. Aaron Sorkin portrays you as a kind of a nerdy guy worried that his girlfriend's parents will find out that he's a radical and an activist. I, I think my account is more accurate than Aaron Sorkin's, don't you? Yeah, but like 100%. <laughs> yeah, you know, I don't know what to say. You know, I mean, to maybe give him some some slack, you know. he I mean, he was eight years old when the trial of the Chicago 7 was happening. 
you know, and he decided that basically that his own imagination would be the best drama. Uh, there was actually a Hollywood movie that was being planned during the trial, and uh, uh, Dustin Hoffman was playing my role, and he came to the courtroom pretty much every day, you know, and we spoke. I mean, you know, he was just very intent on understanding who we were and what we really thought and so forth. And while that film never got produced, it certainly suggested an intelligent way that anyone trying to make a, a story, a movie on this trial, you know, would have been better served really just to spend some time with us first and to really get to know what, it might seem hard to imagine that there's something more dramatic than your own imagination, but <laughs> the trial of the Chicago 8, which became 7, really was just, as a drama, was impeccable. Well, of course, the Aaron Sorkin film is mostly a courtroom drama, and in the film, the defendants decide that only one of you will testify in the trial, and you all pick Abby Hoffman. But in reality, there was a second defendant who testified. You. Your testimony, which, you know, is reprinted in this book of mine, took most of a week. It's still very powerful and moving. You talked about your trip to Vietnam in 1967. Tell us about that testimony that you provided in the courtroom that's missing from the Aaron Sorkin film. Well, it was our one opportunity that we had as defendants to actually speak to the jury about why we really actually came to Chicago. You know, I was the, the lead organizer and coordinator of the whole coalition that came. And so uh, on this particular trip to Vietnam, I mean, it's a real story. I mean, a woman came up to me and gave me a, just, it's, it looks like about a, a tennis ball size. You know, it was an anti-personnel weapon. There were 640 of these little bomblets in, in a container. And basically this woman had lost every single person in her family because of this particular bomb. And she gave it to me. This was the kind of anti-personnel weapon that was dropped by American planes, by the thousands, by the what millions? Yeah, it was the it was the number one weapon used in North Vietnam, and you know our position as a country was that we were only uh, attacking steel and concrete, but this bomb, you know, I explained to the jury that if this bomb went off right now, everyone here would die, but this jury, the room would be intact. We could still have another trial on the on the trial of the Vietnam War. The reason is is that uh, it'll send send pellets into the air. If one hits your leg, it would ricochet up your leg, and you would die slow bleeding to death. This is the you know this was the horror. You know I think one of the things with you know it was a three days of testimony and. The jury was just in rapt attention. I mean, it really was. You know, I mean, we 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 had people on the jury who just wouldn't buy anything that we would say. But you know, I think the judge was so upset because I was being effective with the jury that I received I don't know two months and two years and six months in contempt of court just for testifying. You know. So your attorneys tried to introduce an exhibit as evidence in the trial uh, after your testimony, the, this American anti-personnel bomb that you had brought back from Vietnam. And the government prosecutor, Thomas Foran, objected to introducing this as 
evidence on the grounds that, now I'm quoting here from the transcript, quote, the Vietnamese war has nothing to do with the charges brought in this indictment, close quote. Uh, how did Judge Hoffman rule on this objection? He ruled the same way he ruled on every single thing that the prosecutor proposed. Anything that came from the prosecutor was accepted. Anything that came from the defense in five and a half months was denied. You know, I'm not trying to toot my horn at all. You know, I was just, you know, I knew about Vietnam. I I brought back American prisoners of war from North Vietnam. You know, actually, I'll tell you a story I've never really shared before. I was in a bomb shelter in North Vietnam where, where we were in utter blackness while we could hear American, you know, bombs going off in Hanoi. Okay, and basically they were trying to, you know, our Vietnamese hosts were trying to, you know, I guess entertain us or something. So they read news accounts, and and in that in the news accounts of one day, they they announced that uh, the Democratic Party was holding its convention in Chicago. And they said, "Oh, aren't you from Chicago?" <laughs> so so that's actually it was there that I learned about the the Democratic Convention. It was there that I made the decision, I am going to Chicago. Now, that would have been an interesting piece of drama in the film, in my opinion. Of course, the emotional peak of the trial came when the judge ordered Bobby Seale bound and gagged for demanding the right to represent himself. That's portrayed very vividly in, in the movie. What was it like for you to be in the courtroom sitting next to a black man in chains with a gag in his mouth. This didn't just happen for an hour. This went on for three, two or three or more days. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think it was four days, actually, that it proceeded. Each day got more intense. You know, the first day, he could speak through his gauze easily. I demand my constitutional right to represent myself. And the jury would hear it. So the marshals each day were basically using greater force to put more gauze into his mouth. And it was just mind-blowing, you know. But what, you know, it didn't matter what they did. He could still be heard by the jury. The important thing, honestly, John, is that, which is not mentioned in the movie, is he was also heard in Africa and Europe and South America and and Asia and Canada and everywhere in the United States. I mean, it was a global event. A black man chained and gagged in an American courtroom because he couldn't represent himself. It would have been possible to include that in the movie, but it wasn't. So this is a movie that has a lot of flaws. Do you recommend that people should see it anyway? I do. You know, I'm watching people send me Facebook posts and, you know, give me calls and things like that. And uh, even some people who people who are really close to the trial are pretty much aghast and, you know, might recommend to boycott the movie. But the fact is, is that this was an event that touched so many people's lives. And, and so the movie stirs up all those memories and uh, and people who in a way, no better, just, you know, let me know, boy, I just love the movie. <laughs> so, so my view is that DreamWorks is sort of known for its wizardry, you know. You have to admit the timing was magical. 
I mean, there's so many similarities between 1968 and here we are in an election where some people are panicking. It might be the last election we ever have and everyone is worried, you know, and here's a, a group of people su supported by millions and millions of people who basically just say, no, we're going to put the government on trial. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a timely message, and, and its perfection is just, you know, fabulous. So, yeah, all this happened more than 50 years ago, but yet it seems like today, you know, it's, it, it does have uh, some connections. And, of course, there's a connection not just to the present but to the future because we're all very anxious about what's going to happen after— let us assume Biden takes office on on uh, January twentieth, and I wonder what your thoughts are about this. Well, I'm I'm working with a group of people who don't seem to have any despair, depression, and are 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 filled with hope, but they're taking a long view, and that's how they got there. They're really dedicated to creating the future of the human race. And they, uh, they it's, they're, they're not psychic, but they do have a profound ability to just apply some common sense. If you think about what's coming, I mean, we all want to see a vaccine and everything go back to normal. But uh, the fact is, is that it really is warming up. And, and as it warms up, we're going to see increasing droughts. And as we see increasing droughts, we're going to see an acceleration of uh, the, the depletion of aquifers. The aquifer depletion is maybe the biggest thing that's going to be facing all of us because that's where food chains, distribution chains begin to snap. And, I, you know, we envision a level of migration uh, from certain parts of the world where, you know, people have farmed for a thousand years successfully. Suddenly you just have to choose, you're going to die or you're going to move. And so it's not a small thing. I'm talking about Central America, the, the Sudan, the parts of Africa, the Middle East, part, large parts of Asia. Are, we're going to see hundreds and hundreds of millions of people moving across international borders. And it's going to be a really a time like no other. So we're taking the view that uh, let's, let's really cut the Gordian knot and let, let's create a new way of living on Earth. So our, our vision actually is we're basically creating a network of intentional communities that want to live and thrive and grow uh, into a network for a nation, a new nation on Earth. Uh, and so it is a long view. I don't really try to bend anybody's arm as argument anymore. You know, I just say that we, we know what's coming and as as everybody figures it out, you're welcome to join us too. Randy Davis, the New Left's most talented organizer in the 60s and still at it today. Randy, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.